This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. How do you like that? The fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, 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 correct. Good luck. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that explores the mystery, challenges, and possibilities of the human evolutionary journey, featuring some of the most brilliant, visionary, creative, and caring people who are doing great work to help create a more beautiful world that we know is possible, and perhaps even save this one. My guests today are two of those brilliant, visionary, creative, and caring people, Sarah Van Hoy and Lisa Weil. As Goddard faculty, they get to work with and support many other such people who are finding their own creative, visionary, caring voices in the world. Most recently, they've come together to start teaching embodiment studies at Goddard. Sarah and Lisa, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to hear about the work that you guys are doing here at Goddard and beyond and what it is that moves you to do this work and how you got to this place in your lives. So we could begin by what do you do here at Goddard, why Goddard, and how you got to Goddard? This is going to be a short answer, a long... I mean, this answer could go on for hours. That's totally fine. <laughs> we have an hour and a half, and it's going to be an interplay. I'm going to try, do my best to stay out of the way. <laughs> and if necessary, I'll mediate, but... <laughs> okay. Well, we might need your help. So. I'm sure we'll need your help. I'll be here. And there's so much that I want to talk about, so I don't want to spend too much on my own journey. But there's no place in the world like Goddard. And I've taught at a bunch of different places, mostly the Ivy League where I was educated and my nieces have both gone to Ivy Leagues to Harvard actually and then another one is at another really good school quote unquote it's just to me these places to me are just intellectual deserts compared to here and it's because of the integration that happens here for students and what happens for students it happens for us too I mean I I am not the person I was when I started teaching here now 23 years ago. I've just expanded. 
in so many ways. And I've become so, not just multidisciplinary, but multidimensional. And just, I'm just bigger. I'm just bigger. And I'm so much more connected, which is something I'm going to talk about a whole lot later in the program. And Sarah will too, because it's so much what embodiment studies about is, is reconnecting. So um, I feel blessed to have come here um, and um, it's, I was already teaching in the Goddard way before I came here, which is why I wasn't kept on at the other places that I taught. I just found the idea of lecturing in front of a podium, which is hysterical. And I would do it satirically. I would parody professors all the time. And um, I just didn't get it, what, what that was all about. And so when I came here, I knew it was home. And that's, that's just how it is for me. Well, I would echo what Lisa says. Yeah, there really is no place like Goddard. And when you think about um, pulling the the vision of your world into being or, or creating the world in your vision of love and beauty, you want to go someplace where people are not living in what's already been done, that they're really in that act of drawing something new in and the kind of support that, advisors give I think Lisa described it fairly well is very mutual and um, really about not just certainly lecturing at podiums and not even cultivating your thoughts or your mind but really getting in touch with what it is in your heart that you want to make happen yeah so Goddard is Goddard is amazing it is unique and it's on the edge of what's happening it's not repeating what's already been done so and okay and I will just add on to that and I kind of regret having said that place other places are intellectual deserts that's not accurate it's not that there is not a whole lot of exciting intellectual stuff going on it's what's not there and it's the kind of knowing that is not valued in other institutions which has become for me possibly the most important form of knowing um, that there is. And I offer this workshop called Othered Forms of Knowing now at every residency because these are forms of knowing that the dominant culture does other, either by way of ridicule or neglect. Um, and these are forms of knowing like dreams, which are really important to me and have guided me all my life. Intuition. Um, communications with non-human beings, whether animals, plants, the earth itself. Some people I know communicate with the ocean. Um, I'm leaving out a lot of other forms of non-conscious And when you knowing. say communicate, for many of us, it's more than sufficient just to, be, to listen. Yeah, that's, a, that's beautiful. It is, yeah. And In case anybody is is all of a sudden feeling like they're lacking because, yeah. or, or missing something, or not Listening. able to actually, or not inclined to, to talk to or communicate actively. Yeah, yeah, that's you beautiful. Know. And I think listening is, that kind of listening is such a discipline to be cultivated. And I'm, I'm no, more and more I'm meeting people who are working on that, cultivating that. It feels so important. Um, and obviously not just to non-human beings. <laughs> yeah. And we are the ones who have the choice, who, have, who can make those yeah, choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, and then also just the heart. I mean, the, the heart's way of knowing. I feel like Sarah said, it, this is a place of heart. And I think that um, students who come here really do uh, develop their hearts. I, I know I have. It's been, hu- it's been a huge um, part of what has happened for me here is just the enlarging of my my heart field is is how it feels and and then there is a kind of knowing that comes from that and that kind of knowing definitely is not respected in the academy at least not in my experience or observation i'm continually impressed by what i see around here in terms of how people are blossoming here hmm. there's an environment that supports the experience from the heart and in the heart mm. as opposed to the university. I remember going to college and walking into one of those lecture halls and literally turning around and walking out <laughs> saying, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. Yeah. I, dro- I quickly dropped two classes that way. Yeah. My first semester. And so I can totally, totally relate throughout my entire life with what you're talking about. And so this embodiment studies, talk about what Thank you. what is embodiment studies and how long have you been doing it and where did the inspiration to do this come from? Well, I would like Sarah to take um, most of this, but I do need to start by talking about Ellie App because um, I've been with Ellie longer than you, uh, than you came into the program after Ellie had been here for a while. Ellie Epp came here um, having a PhD in philosophy of science in, ni- in 2002, and she retired uh, two summers ago, or three, and she's the one who designed this, um, the embodiment studies curriculum such as it is, and who, who, who had the vision for it, and also ha- who had the science, because it's incredibly, it's, there's a lot of cognitive science and neuroscience in in the curriculum as she designed it. Not all of our embodiment studies students actually go there, but quite a few who never would have thought to do so have and have gotten a lot out of it. In fact, it's been life-changing for some students. And me too, I was someone who never was interested in science before Ellie came along and came to think, how could I have missed this? This is foundational. And it's now so much a part of my um, equipment, my intellectual equipment, but it's part of my worldview too. Is it's become much more scientific. Um, so Ellie um, Ellie Epps' vision of embodiment studies is behind what we do. But but Sarah and I have also um, we've we've made some significant changes that that accord more with the people that we are and the backgrounds that we have. But we have Ellie's um, entire. Um, curriculum, her webs, her workshops, her um, what else? Uh, f- talks she's given. They're all posted on our website, so people have full access. And it's just an incredible compendium of it's of it's 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 a treasure trove of thinking and um, brilliant vision and. And it's all there for our students to access. And um, so well, we, have, we should probably say a bit about what embodiment studies is. <laughs> and, and actually, it has changed a bit. So, I mean, with, with Ellie, it was very much about um, 
um, understanding human life, well, it still is, as life lived as a body in a physical universe. Um, and But Ellie was quite... Um, her, she, she, she wanted to um, critique mind-body dualism in a very serious way. We still do, but that was a huge part of the curriculum at that time, was critiquing the mind-body dualism, which one finds everywhere. But it's ancient, you know, the ancient philosophers split mind and body and privileged mind and spirit over matter. And um, so we were looking at... Um, variations of that and the repercussions of that in all forms of culture and uh, we don't emphasize that part as more as much as as we did then but it's still important but i would you would you talk about a little bit more about what how we are the direction that we're steering embodiment studies now well i think first i'll say that i i came to embodiment studies when i was doing my doctoral work i don't know if i came to it as a study, I guess, when I was doing my doctoral work, although I probably came to it when I popped out of the womb, um, and was thinking about um, traditions of medicine that um, whose language about the body is much closer to being a language from the body. It's uh -huh. much less distant, and that mind-body dualism is not embedded in those traditions the way it is in the West quite so much so when I met Ellie whenever it was it, you know I recognized her work as something familiar and I would say that um, you know at Goddard we have this triad of knowing, doing and being right that are all interconnected and people's learning is a holistic expression of, of these three components and so um Embodiment study sort of reflects that, that there's a, a chunk of it that is about understanding um, understanding that the answers that we give to things that um, point toward sp spirituality as a disembodied thing or point towards things that don't require the body, if you actually look closely, you can see that... Um, bodies are actually much more magnificent locations of those experiences that we call transcendent. Mm. So that knowing part is, I think, the part about um, untangling and understanding and looking deeper into those things that we think are separate and really, and really giving bodies and sensual experience more credit for um, things that we tend to locate elsewhere. Mm. Um, and then I think um, the doing part of embodiment studies is is hugely important because it has to do with cultivating practices um, that have to do with, you know, the language that we use is being in your body as if it's possible not to be. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a funky language. But um, practices that have to do with experiencing that lived body. So, again, it's um, looking at the difference between what in my world we, we think of as the objective body, right? The scientific body or the bodies that are all the same or the bodies that medicine recognizes and really looking at the lived body. And there's German words for this and Lisa told me that she'd say them because I can't pronounce <laughs> them. Um, uh, 
we figured out that there's three German words that I really like, so we connected because Lisa speaks German. Feel free to <laughs> um, to play with them. Yeah, so there's these two words, Leib. Körper and Leib. Right, so Leib is the lived body, and Körper is like the objective body. Um, and so part of the practices of embodiment study, the doing part, is getting into this this lived experience, which um, one of the directions that embodiment studies, I think, is moving now um, in the program as it's configured now with Lisa and I and also with all the students is to really understand that our lived experience is um, deeply cultural, very social, that our our bodies are um, socially inscribed or, um, you know, there's, it's not sort of a neutral experience that we all have that's the same. And, and then again, a lot of the things that we attribute to being out there, like culture, is actually here in ourselves. Embodied. It's embodied. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. For better and for worse. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then there's that mysterious being thing that, where everything changes and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lisa can probably tell stories about students who's... Oh, I'd love to, but... And also, I, I want to just kind of also give a... Maybe a cultural, political framework and get a little missionary about it, <laughs> which I do, which is that um, we are on an edge as, as a species. And and I believe that part of the edge we're on has to do with this epidemic in this culture anyway of disconnection. And, and you know, technology isn't helping with that. <laughs> Electronics especially have become... It's accelerating that. It's accelerating at such an alarming rate. Um, and um, and I think that there is this massive denial that we do live in bodies. I think that's partly what that disconnection is all about. I mean, that's the theoretical component of the disconnection is that we don't actually live in bodies. And then by extension that our bodies don't live on this earth, that that our bodies are not embedded in this earth. And that is part How of... How could it be when we're not connected to our bodies? Exactly. Yeah. That's so right. Yeah. So, so those are just two ways in which we're just massively deluding ourselves right now. And, and they're deeply connected, as you, as you just pointed out. I mean, if we are not in our bodies, we can't feel that we are of this earth. And... Um, and where is that leading us? And we all see where that is leading us. So, so at its heart, you know, there is this drive to reconnect in embodiment studies, to understand, as Sarah said, that we cannot not be in our bodies. There's no such thing as being disembodied. We are always, Although always, our always. culture does its best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to also, at the same time, I mean, the parallel is just so... It's so consistent that, you know, to make us believe that we can do without the earth. The unbelievable arrogance of that, that we are not connected. Or that we can we use the earth. everything, that we can use it. In yeah. any way, yeah. our, exactly. our disembodied brains exactly. can, can imagine. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so, and... F- also yeah. divorced from any connection with the heart. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's all those, for all those reasons, it feels like a field that needs to come into being now and to grow. And I, you know, it applies to everything we do at Goddard. For me, in some ways, it's the um, ultimate instance of Goddard pedagogy, at least of Goddard Graduate Institute pedagogy, because it, it is what we do 
at residency for sure. We try to get students and ourselves connected to our desires, to our hearts, and certainly to our bodies, which isn't the way that Ellie would put it. I mean, Ellie had this scientific precision. I mean, it's it's more of a neural network mending that has to happen to connect. It's not like I will connect with my body because I am my body, but there's something in me that needs hooking up. And then we find ways to do that here. I mean, dreams are an obvious way that we, we hook up with ourselves, but the, all this, everything we do pretty much at residency has that effect of connecting us with ourselves in these amazing ways. Partly because we're social animals, and when we come into this sort of community that works, there's something very evolutionary and, yeah. and biological that happens, actually. It's like, oh, right? And it has to do with heart, because mm -hmm. it's a community that's centered around heart and that is on this land, too. I think it has to do with right. this and land as well. Right. I, I was, I'm thinking of a couple of students, um, Taylor and Jenny, who are doing yeah. this work on embodiment and decolonization. Oh, yeah. And thinking about how... Decolonization? Col decolonization. D. 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 D-E-C-O-L-O-N-I-Z-A. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, when we say that our, our culture is um, sort of allowing for this experience of disembodiment, it's actually the experience of colonization is one of... Um, that produces that through these various I mean you, you should have Jenny come talk to you sometimes she's mm, pretty fantastic yeah, absolutely yeah. okay um, that's a second recommendation there yeah you've heard this before <laughs> yeah. yeah so Jenny is kind it, of it might actually have been you I think you so you're just okay, saying so I'm it the her second fan. time yeah <laughs> I'm definitely her fan but I second that yeah Lisa and I are both Third her fans <laughs> yeah um, she has a very um brilliant and lovely way of like really breaking down the things that uh that happen to your body when you know when cultures are colonized and civilized um that ha that goes from everything from you know guilt and shame to tucking your pelvis to sitting in chairs to you know um it's very it's fascinating mm -hmm. you know how that is sort of the effect of this Eurocentric yeah. scene. Yeah. 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 And and Taylor, did you wanna say uh Taylor does work with um he does anti racist work and social change work with groups and he uses embodiment as his tool and lens for that of cultivating greater degrees of suppleness so that we can um you know, we we do a lot of activist work with a lot of crap embedded in our systems. Like we're experiencing it right now in mm -hmm. in this political moment of massive amounts of shame and mm. condescension and um, what it's okay to feel, what we should not be feeling, how we should be rational. You know, I'm calm about it, so therefore. Um, you know, by extension, you should be too, or, you know, like all this stuff that we put on each other. Um, he's really looking into how we can um, use embodiment practices to, to cultivate a, a more uh, supple, which he discovered means entreating for mercy. Ah. 
um, a more supple engagement and a greater range of being able to be connected with each other in difficult ways so that we remain connected and we're not, you know, various factions on the left alienating each other um, because we're not going to, you know, the world needs us to not do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had this image of the pendulums swinging and the momentum of of history driving people to reacting to each other and and it can take a long time for things to settle and people to meet in the middle and that sounds like that's what he's trying to do i don't know if he wants us to meet in the middle i think that he actually wants us to be able to sustain what it takes to not have to all gravitate to one place i don't mean all gravitating but i mean on the emotional level yeah, to meet in our differences, yes. in our differences, yes. rather than it finding a sameness. Without tolerating. carrying the baggage of emotional charge that, that drives people to, to conflict. Right, or even being okay with the baggage of emotional charge that is appropriate to this moment. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. right, mm-hmm. not resisting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about some of the experiences that my students have had in embodiment studies, the discoveries that they've made. And it's, I think what mostly um, my students are doing, because that's what I'm encouraging to to do, is to get in touch with the um, forms of embodied knowing, the things that their bodies know that they were not aware that they knew, and to try to write that. And... Um, and it hasn't always come from me. In many, in many cases, it's their own urge that they just. But some people need to be nudged a little bit to do that, and uh, it's just astonishing what comes out of that. Um, so I could give a few. Okay, I could start with the oldest example would be uh, Rhonda Patsy, who came with MS and wrote a thesis in which she basically tracked her body's deterioration which was an incredible discipline. Um, It was called um, Body Awareness as I Slip Away. And she she actually did write about the very, it started with a dream in which she was full of sand. She started out as this person full of sand and then the sand just started pouring out of her, like through an hourglass, it just started pouring out of her faster and faster and she understood the dream was all about what was going to happen to her and she decided to have it happen consciously and she wrote it she wrote the whole thing and she it was a completely different experience because she was writing it it was so this would be an example of a thesis that both was transformative language arts and embodiment studies at the same time because it was also about writing as healing um, more recently, I had another student who combined transformative language arts with embodiment studies because, well, the things she was tracking more than anything else is her own love affair with the earth, and um, which became really erotic at times. And um, her writing about landscapes was just amazing. And she wrote about landscape with the same kind of love and richness and sensuousness that she wrote about her relationship with her horse she took up horseback riding at the age of 65 and just fell in love with this horse and these all these descriptions were just so sensuous and um you wouldn't happen to have any of them with you no i wish (laughs) i did I, i didn't think to bring any of that um 
But she also, I mean, was a TLA student, and her quest was to define what is embodied writing. Because it's something that, as I'm a writer and I teach writers a lot, um, and that was my main focus before I started doing embodiment studies. And writers all want to know how do you do embodied writing. And her, she wanted to know how how do you define it? What is what is the difference between writing that is really embodied and writing that's not? Because we all know when we read it, you can feel it. You know, <laughs> Ellie used to talk that's, about that. that's the quality. <laughs> of, that's that's what gives it away. You can feel it. You can if feel. If you it. don't feel it, it's not there. I know, but yeah. so that answer doesn't suffice for a graduate thesis. So she had to go farther. <laughs> And she did. She she did a. She actually ended up calling it incarnate writing, and she did a beautiful job of mm-hmm. saying what what are the elements of that writing, and she was describing her own writing, of course. But um, that was wonderful. Um, and more recently, um, I had last semester graduated a student whose embodied knowing came from having been doing sex work and sexual healing, and. I really had to push her. I knew how much she knew. I mean, anyone who knew her knew that she, and, but she hadn't considered it knowing. Mm-hmm. She had so much wisdom in her body, so much amazing experience, and that felt so important, and she got that out onto the page, and it was remarkable. And also worked a lot with dreams, and she also um, is a self-identified witch, so she there were... Um, incantations and spells and all other forms of non-conscious knowing that um, that accompanied this body knowing that she had. It was very powerful. She's also, though, ex- an extremely um, developed critical thinker, so none of it sounded woo-woo in the least, because it was all presented in this form of critical analysis with this other stuff spliced in. So it was it was just very convincing that way. And I think could even pass muster at a traditional institution. Um, and then um, a student I'm graduating this semester is um, working with trauma and dissociation, which is an interesting thing with embodiment studies. We're not all about woo-woo connecting. I mean, as I say, we live in a culture where most of us are disconnected. And this, this student is focusing on dissociation and the kind of disconnection that happens in the aftermath of trauma. And as it turns out, many of our students at Goddard are working with trauma, not because I think they're more traumatized than others than at other schools, but because I think they're just more aware. <laughs> I think we're all living in. Yeah, I think this in this this whole world yeah. is is being traumatized. Yeah. Everything in it, mm. people, things, yeah. animals, yeah. objects, yeah, absolutely, the whole thing, yeah, so is going true. through this this yeah. incredible process mm. as humanity's path just rolls on and accelerates. So true. It's so true, Tonya. Wow. I and I know that this is a big area of interest for you, Sarah. Mm. But continue. Okay. So, yeah, so basically, um, in her case, she's talking specifically about sexual violence and healing from that. But trauma is trauma. And um, she's writing a lot about her body as a, as a body that dissociates and how that's not to be pathologized, that in fact dissociation can be a step along the healing path. Right. It has to be, <laughs> doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's where we start, most of us. It's right? what we have to work with. Exactly, yeah. yeah. If we don't start there, we, we have no place to that's start. That's right. From. 
Yeah. That's our leg to stand on. That's exactly right. But there there does need to be sort of a will to, you know, connection. And an acceptance. Uh, acceptance of, of that. it. Yeah. And a will to... Um, Embody it? Yeah. Be with it? Be, be with it. That's yeah. it. That's it. That's it. Be with it. Because the awareness is what makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. To be with that dissociation. Yeah. So embodying it isn't necessarily being with it? Well, I mean, we could say that even when you're dissociated, you're still embodied. Okay. But that maybe it's the awareness that mm-hmm. gets you to the point of understanding that. Do you, do you see? Mm-hmm. You sit Starting with, on the path to understanding. Yeah, it, yeah, because you yeah. sit with that. You sit with, oh, this isn't in my heart at all, but it's somewhere else. It's in my nerves. Oh, it's here. So it's not, it's, I am feeling it. It's just not necessarily always going where, where I want it to go or expect it to go, yeah. Right. And it... And it isn't necessarily just a momentary thing. It it can be a, a lifelong process. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know this, Tonio. This is wonderful. <laughs> we're so in sync. It's great. Well, I, I think we're all following s- sort of similar parallel paths through life. Yeah, I think so. I guess so. Sounds like for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is so important about the student's work is the way that it um, points out the sort the not only the normative um, agenda of quote healing discourses and the way that they pathologize human beings, but also the way that. Um, you know, health, which seems so beautiful and innocuous, is really used as a tool for controlling people. And mm. um, you have to have a certain kind of bravery to speak up to that um, and to speak back to what appears to be innocuous and beautiful and say no and expand beauty bigger and wider and affirm that and have it hold more space and mm-hmm. I think that that work on a meta level is you know it's one of the things that I really admire mm-hmm. about the person that is graduating that Lisa's talking that, about that, yeah. yeah flesh that out a little more well I think that we can become aware of how the um, the discourses the narratives the language the practices of health are normative that is they pull people into certain norms um, this can be really sort of obvious when you know there's certain kind of things where we say hey um, I know some people who have a little boy who um, is a beautiful little boy I take care of him a lot and at home he's a terror and they're considering, he's four, putting him on medication. I have massive judgment about this, can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Rather than considering um, that what's going on for this four-year-old is some kind of systemic connected thing, and it's not like, you know, if he's perfectly fine at school and he's perfectly lovely with Auntie Sarah, maybe it's not a biological issue that has to do with his brain chemistry. So that's one sort of extreme way of um, pathologizing people and also pathologizing individuals. This is your 
your trauma and we're going to have some graceful, gracious, elegant empathy for your brokenness rather than acknowledging um, your survivorhood, our trauma, sort of this beautiful thing that's, you know, this legacy of the individual, which is so, um, you know, seductive in our culture, is finally kind of crumbling where we can say... We don't have to. We don't have to retreat to our singular story. That's so we true. can actually share our stories. So there's all these ways in which I think um, healing narratives are embedded in culture in ways that seem lovely but actually are are not serving us. And, and I think another part of that, and, and it's all implied in what you're saying, is the idea that he- healing can be merely personal. And this is a culture that privatizes and personalizes everything. But when we are in a culture that is itself pathological, what does healing mean? How far can personal healing go unless we somehow carry the culture with us? I mean, it doesn't real healing today demand cultural revision and, and and finding a way that we can create a healthy culture around us. And that's exactly what you're saying about this little kid, right? Yeah, everybody's in a, in a nested system. And yeah, and I think that's what our students come to understand here, or we hope they do, that it is about creating a healthy culture, not just healthy individuals, because there is no such thing right. as a healthy individual in a sick culture. And I think our students come many times already understanding and they come to just have the courage to teach it in their various ways. Yeah, And to have it reinforced, Mm -hmm. supported. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it requires a kind of radical critical thinking to wend our way through our culture, our cultural biases, our cultural concrete. Yeah. And it's not easy to do because everybody around us well, not everybody, but most of the people in our culture are reinforcing that. They're yeah. buying into the system and they're not questioning it. Yeah. And you're talking, Sarah, you're talking about medicine and traditional Western. It's like an oxymoron, that statement in a way, but medical doctors, Western medical doctors are some of the most disassociated, disembodied people that I've come across. Um, in the way they approach medicine. I don't know if I would say that so much. I mean, yeah. I'm scared of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, my, my truck is not so much with biomedicine. Um, although I do have, I mean, I have a lot of, my, I have a lot of my own long relationship with psychiatry. It's a particular thorny thing. Um you know, biopsychiatry, psychopharmacology, those sorts of things, which I also think can have tremendous benefit. And I'm required to sort of, because of my positionality, hold space for a lot of different positions on it. But truly speaking, it's a very thorny thing for me Um, because I come from many generations of women who have been abused by it. Um, But what I think, so then what happens is people people move from that to the quote holistic alternative world and think that that's you know we can we can relax and let our shoulders down and this is all good and the truth of the matter is the same value systems and to a certain extent more so 
are embedded in the holistic health movement and individualism in particular because we have entire marketing machines for, you know, this would be Chinese medicine where I've done my, a lot of learning um, that says Western medicine just treats the symptoms, but Chinese medicine or insert whatever treats the person, the deep individual, you know, everything is individualized, which is beautiful in its way, but it, it really, um, boy, is there a burden on the individual there. Whereas, hey, sometimes it's really liberating to just have some symptoms. Um, so I think that we really need to look critically at, at all these ways that what seems lovely is shot through with and, you know, all these intersecting webs mm. of mm. history. Right, mm. absolutely. Mm. Critical, radical critical thinking applied across the board to everything. And nuanced, which is one thing I really appreciate about Sarah's thinking. It is, it is a nuanced thinking. I really, I respect that. And I also think it's essential to apply it to myself, my own thinking, my own yeah. enculturation, my own current state of beliefs and thinking worldview at this present moment and yeah. to continue doing it continually because I'm continually learning and updating my understanding and my relationship with the world around me. And if I'm not questioning, it's gonna, I'm going to get bogged down yeah. in my past, yeah. which isn't necessarily my past. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there was a time when in order to be healed, people had to be integrated into their cultures and in indigenous cultures. And for us, it's the opposite, you know, which is really hard. It's, it's sad. Yeah. We have to learn to, to be alienated. It's not fun. We work tremendously hard to solve problems with our individual story. Yeah. It's, and a lot of the New Age narrative reinforces that, you know, like the... Well, you know, your second chakra is blocked, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, another another way of becoming disembodied. Another way of pathologizing. Yeah, people. I there's there's a, the term medicine, as I've heard it used in the Native American tradition, is very expansive. Like I've heard the term medicine being used to describe absolutely anything that one looks at and relates to directly with awareness that everything can be medicine kind of a tantric approach to healing yeah uh, we have this um, these subtitles in our health arts program um, social medicine and ecological medicine which has to do with not only thinking about that um we require we have to think about health and illness in these larger contexts of our social world and our ecological world but also thinking about the expanded things that can be medicine what can be social medicine song activism your own song your mm. own mm. thing that you're teaching mm. your own voice and i think that that's what is beautiful about goddard students is they really do get in touch with their medicine mm. and themselves as medicine and they have you know, the the biggest transformation that I would see is that it's one of self-recognition and the courage to be visible in that. Mm. You know, this is like a little incubator for them to say, okay, I'm ready to 
radiate this. Yeah, and they do. My yeah. God. Yeah, they're super radiant. Yeah. Okay. Sunglasses required. Okay, you just uttered the the big R word that radiating. Talk more about that because that is a very powerful thing to me. And where does that come from and how do people get to that point? What do you think? Well, okay, I had a free association that wasn't probably what you wanted. <laughs> oh, forget about what I want. But this is for this is about you and what you thought. Okay, well, maybe the good, the light thing should. I have the dark. I have a dark association. Well, we got. We need both sides. We want both sides. So, and it connects with the other thing. I hope I get to talk about a little bit, which is the journal uh, Dark Matter that I've been editing yeah. since mm-hmm. 2014, and mm-hmm. um, you know Fukushima <laughs> radiation. I mean, is something. I, and there's an article in the last issue called "Our Radiant Lives," and it actually is about Fukushima. Um, but it's not just about Fukushima. I mean, it carries all the meanings that I think we think of also when we think of radiant. I mean, that our own radiance. You know, they say that light is lighter in the dark, and um, that our that our own radiance has transformative power and. And maybe even more so when the conditions are what they are right now. Well, we all radiate. It's yeah. a matter of what we are radiating and how aware of what we're radiating, what we're embodying in yeah. order to ra- radiate. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, you have, I'm sure, some wonderful I actually things. had the same, the same free association, interestingly no enough. Yeah, I was like, radiation, <laughs> Fukushima. <laughs> Um, then I completely forgot what I was going to say. Well, like the sun, the sun. Well, there's, yeah. there's the metaphor of the the sun shines down equally upon everyone, yeah. but it also burns. So there's there's different qualities to it. There's there's finding a healthy balance or a healthy a healthy relationship with with these elements. There's a lot of different. Maybe we can think of radiating as being a relational thing, that we have responsibility for what we're radiating. And we have responsibility to understand that there's a lot of policing of that radiating that goes on, right? So, like, uh, we're supposed to vibrate, you know, positively. Mm-hmm. Um, or and, we're supposed to hold it back, too. Yeah. Like, it's there's this great film about... T- with Adrian Brody, I forgot the the title of it. Where he 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 feels very compassionate towards his students, and there's this one woman, one student who's having a hard time, and she needs some support and some uh, acknowledgement, recognition, and, and and he gives her a hug, and a whole furor arises out of that, and that's become a big mm-hmm. thing. You're not teachers oh, are not allowed oh, to touch oh, students. Oh. Not a lot. That's that's a form of radiation. Uh, you can't. You have to hold back. Yeah, and I think actually that you know we thought we might end up talking even more than than we have so far about uh, well sex and mm. you know I, I was right. saying sensuous, but I did also use the word erotic about mm-hmm. my students' relationship to Earth. But then I did say I just had a student who, who who wrote about sexual healing and and part of what we all need to be healed from is a culture that is incredibly anti-sex in the sense in the integrated sense okay well, i mean it's a total pro porn culture 
Right. It's both pro The extremes. <laughs> it's insanity. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's like, yeah, it's the Puritan culture discovering pornography. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, to radiate sexually is absolutely forbidden. It's, how often does that happen? Uh, you know, at least not, maybe, I don't know, in traditional contexts, it, it is pretty much taboo, isn't it? Well, I think it's a it's a social identity thing too. Who gets to radiate and who doesn't, and who that's a very for good whom point. is radiation dangerous? Yeah, and, I and mean, what women are, are supposed to radiate sexually for men, but but then you then I always think, is that real radiance? Well, what, it's what's not safe there? to do that either. I mean, women. Well, also they're expected they're, to do it within s- certain constraints. Like you can wear flashy clothes yeah. and flashy shoes and do flashy hairdos, but you can't expose too much. Right. Well, and, yeah. or if you do those flashy things, you need to be welcoming and expecting of... To be raped? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's an age delineation in there as well, because there's a lot of... Fe- oh, yeah. There's a huge fear over young teenage girls who are supposedly exposing themselves too much that mm-hmm. are being too are reading too much but what other people are interpreting as sexuality mm-hmm. right and, and i think there's yeah. other things like if you're expressing your queerness or if you if your bodies are brown like there's certain places where it's just not safe yeah. to be radiant yeah it's yeah. not in certain bodies so true. it's not okay That's to be exactly what you right. are yeah. Which reminds me of, you have a quote in one of your Dark Matter journals by Barbara Moore. You actually did your homework? Yeah. You actually read up? <laughs> He's good, Lisa. Yeah. Wow. This is an, I do this show for my education. It's wonderful. This is sort of my form of going to Goddard since I can't <laughs> afford to do anything like that. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and, and it's really important for me to share it with other people That's as I'm great. doing it at the same time. Because if I'm just doing it for myself... It's pretty narcissistic. Mm. Or it's just lonely. <laughs> yes, yes. You nailed that. Together. Do you want more water, yeah. Lisa? Yes. Oh, that's great. Here, how Thank you. That? What are we talking about? <laughs> uh, oh, you were quoting Dark Matter. Bar- Barbara Moore. Barbara Moore. Right. And I printed out a quote of hers for Lisa. What is this? What is it? Yeah. You have a making a face. Yeah, what is this? It's hibiscus and peppermint. Tea. It's strong. God, it doesn't have caffeine in it. No, it? it has no sugar or caffeine or anything. It's I've never strong. tasted anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really strange. Yeah, it's hibiscus okay. is very strong. The peppermint's from my garden. The oh. hibiscus, obviously, not from my garden. <laughs> <laughs> if you add water to it, it probably releases. It's fine too. now. I got used to it. Now that you found out there was no caffeine yeah. or <laughs> radioactive sort of like isotopes. <laughs> <in it. laughs> yeah. Although it, it sort of does taste like it might have something like that. It does. <laughs> Hibiscus has that quality. This is the magical mystery tour. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. never know what's that's, in there. I think that's why I was wondering. <laughs> I'm not malicious by nature. I'm not going to dose you up. No, no, it's just we have a full day ahead of us. So where should we go? You were going to quote from Barbara Moore or well, I was, say something about it. I was going to offer you the opportunity to read the quote oh, this, at any time. Oh, okay. You don't have to do it now. But if you want to get into dark matter... Oh, I love that quote, and it is an embodiment studies quote. I also have a one-minute recording of Barbara Moore. No, you knew of her before you... No, I didn't know of her, but as you said, I did my homework. Oh, that's fabulous. I I found... I have a one-minute quote. Should I play it? Sure. Okay. Yeah. 
Oh, that's amazing. I don't know if I've ever even heard her. I don't think <gasps> I've heard her voice. No. What? I don't have it. Oh. I screwed up. Oh. <laughs> oh. We'll have to do These this. things happen. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm okay. not perfect. <laughs> Barbara Moore, uh, so it would have meant a lot just because she, she died. It was about two years ecstasy. Ago. Oh. And it was a wonderful oh. quote, and I'm, I'm restraining myself from kicking myself. Uh, well, it's interesting, because Barbara Moore was part of my transition from being an editor of a feminist journal to being an editor of this, this journal, Dark Matter, Women Witnessing, which doesn't ever mention the word feminism, but I mean, I think it's the foundation of it is feminism as I practiced it. But Barbara Moore, when I solicited material from her for the first issue, said, I hope you will continue to raise your fist because there's all these women who just descend into this woo-woo thinking, into fantasy land. And I hope that's not where you're going with all these dreams and intuition and talking to animals. And, you know, she kind of thought we were just going that way of denial, which is true. The New Age, there's plenty of that mm. in the New Age yes. movement. Like, just I want to stay in the light, mm -hmm. the spirit and the light, mm -hmm. you know? And as a matter of fact, it's called dark matter for a reason. It's mm -hmm. anything but that. And I think she would have been pleased with the way it's developed. And the fist is very much raised. It's dark matter, okay, dark because of where we are right now. Well, even before you get into the dark yeah. matter, you have a very unique form of feminism. My own feminism. I read your, your you, online you statement that, that, yeah. that your quote-unquote brand of feminism would be at odds with yes. with pretty much all other Well, I don't feminists. think if I were coming into if I were coming of age today, I don't even know if I would be a feminist cuz look what's out there as a model. I mean, it was no one it's hard for people to understand what it was like when I it was all about connecting to the body and the earth and magic and intuition. And now it's it's all about separation and and fighting uh, yeah. against against I don't know what. Yeah. I it's, it's I think it's about just to liberate a little bit. Self-empowerment is what well, I see Well, it's a lot. also about really understanding that there are different experiences of being a woman and to really give space to understanding intersectional identities and different ways. Oh, different thank kinds you, Sarah. Of, That's good. I mean, yeah. you probably now, sometimes it. that gets, yeah. looks like fighting because people are really negotiating intensely to be heard and to be understood. And, but um, I think it's a very productive place. And it's an evolutionary process that each person has to go through in developing their own yeah. worldview. But, but again, it's an individual process, whereas we had a whole culture. When, when you came out, and I came out as a lesbian also, we came out into a huge culture that was not just lesbian. I mean, we had bookstores and we had networks that were incredible. And you were lucky. We were so Many lucky. Many don't. Yeah, cultural performance spaces and uh, so all of that is gone and I just don't it's so it is so much about identity now identity and I think it's about understanding difference which you know begins with really acknowledging that identity is a thing but it, you know understanding that there was a moment when trans women queer women and women of color they said okay this is not this is not one monolithic women and so how do we have diversity and oh yeah no that, that way women? there's been a definite evolution but yeah. what i'm saying is i don't see a big culture out there waiting to receive people maybe i'm just no not i think it, you're so correct. i don't see it i don't well i live here in vermont so <laughs> i see moose and maybe <laughs> speaking of all this my guests are Sarah Van Hoy and Lisa Weil. 
And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Okay, so I'll just say Dark Matter came out of my own well, darkness about what, you know, the spe- species extinction and ecological collapse and and what it seemed like massive denial on the part of a lot of people, including feminists. And it also, the dark is meant to gesture toward the realm of the unknown and of dreams. And I draw on Rebecca Solnit in my, in my first editorial. She's been writing a lot about the unknown as a really fertile place and darkness as a really fertile place. And that it may be what we don't know that's going to save us. But there's so much fear of the unknown. <laughs> and the other way it registers is scientifically, you know, dark matter is, composes 85% of the universe, but scientists say, and it is considered to be the animating force of the universe, but scientists acknowledge that they don't really know what it is or how it works at all. It's a big, big mystery. So it's all part of the magical mystery tour. So it's about venturing into these unknown realms and as we confront, because the subtitle is Women Witnessing, as we bear witness to what is happening. So a lot of what happens in dark matter is just the witnessing, which in, in itself, I think, is an important act. And then it's a home for all of the kinds of knowing that I was talking about before, dreams, and especially, and a lot of there's a lot of communicating with non-human beings. and. And just writing about our relationships with non-human beings. And this actual, this last issue has, they're the next issue. It hasn't come out yet. It's going to have a wonderful piece about listening that you will love. Listening to plants, to stones. Um, My last girlfriend had her own blog titled All is Listening. Yeah, yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah, and uh, elephants <laughs> are really important in dark matter for some reason. I mean, it's the homepage is elephants, and there's just a lot of people who write for dark matter, like including myself, for just in total utter disbelief and grief at what is happening with the elephant population. It's just it just feels like the most obscene crime. So okay, well, I'll just read this. I love this quote. I'm really grateful that you you pulled this out from Barbara Moore's The Great Cosmic Mother because it actually does, in a way, it, it, it does describe the mission of dark matter. And I think it, it's very related to embodiment studies, too. We are about to destroy each other and the world because of profound mistakes made in Bronze Age patriarchal ontology. Mistakes about the nature of being, about the nature of human being in the world, which is what, we in embodiment studies, we try to revise these errors about our bodies, right? This is very connected. Evolution itself is a time process, seemingly a relentlessly linear unfolding. But biology also dreams, and in its dreams and waking visions, it outleaps time as well as space. It experiences provision, clairvoyance, telepathy, synchronicity. Thus, we have what has been called a magical capacity built into our genes to evolve, to save ourselves from species extinction, we can activate our genetic capacity for magic. That's, that's wonderful. I, I love that, yeah. Because I think, I totally agree with you. <laughs> what we don't know, this, yeah. this huge realm of the unknown yeah. is where all possibility exists, yeah. including the possibility to write this seemingly over-the-edge 
world that we live in that, yeah. that seems like it's it's already tipping over the edge. But we don't really know because there's so much more that we don't know than we can even begin to think we know. Exactly. And if we rely on our rational, analytic, linear brains, then we're, we're doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> that, those are the nails in our coffin yeah. already. And the young people that are coming through, and I'm just continually impressed with Goddard students coming through and emerging with such heart, such vision, so much care and love for the world, and yeah. so much desire to give. Yeah, that's true. And heal. That's so true. And that, to me, is, is the absolute testament to the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. And everyone at Goddard. That's... I don't see that anywhere else. I'm not really looking that far <laughs> anywhere else, but I, but I really don't see it. And I'm looking all over for, for this kind of stuff, and there's a hotbed of it here. Yeah. And I quickly want to say thank you to Carla for revealing a lot of this to me. Oh. Because she has faculty and students parading through her show, and I'm there every week to witness it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Carla's fantastic. Yeah, she's part of this hotbed. She's a really important part of this hotbed. She's an important magician in the whole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you have a bumper sticker title for this work, the, this well, is it the Donna Haraway thing? It's the Witch's Heel. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> That's different. Uh, Witch's Heel. That was a bumper sticker in the old, back when I was, you know. <laughs> yeah, Witch's Heel. Is, that's the, if I had to reduce my feminism to two words now, that would be what it is. Yeah, because it's true. <laughs> and it goes back in time, which is what, even as we're looking forward, we really need to be looking back because people did know things then that we need to know. Which is where everyone knew they healed, <laughs> which is why they got and massacred. That, and that everything serves to be used as a tool for healing. Yes. Even the things that, we're, that are traumatizing us yes. and, are, and are most scary to us. To quote from my last year's student, graduating student, the poison becomes the medicine. Yeah. The pharmacon. With awareness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The pharmacon. Yeah. Sarah, you've been very quiet. Very restrained this morning. I'm listening to Lisa, who I love, oh. I love to listen to. <laughs> Likewise. It's a pleasure. Well, we love collaborating. I'm sorry if I've taken out too much of the air. Lisa had things she really wanted but to I say. But I did have things. I'm totally thrilled and, and enjoying this. I'm, I love this. But you're happy over there, obviously. I'm happy. I'm thinking about magic, actually, because oh. I just... You know, yesterday the students started to trickle in and you could really feel it yes. was like the magic seeping That's in. That's so true. And in a very ordinary way. Like yeah. magic is what, this is kind of embodiments. That it's just, if we're aware of what is so ordinary, it's also so magical. That's we don't so have true. to do these like weird convulsive things to make it happen. Yeah. It's everyday magic. Yeah. It's just part of what Goddard is. And this is what's possible. This is what's available to all of us, to everyone. Yeah. If we, first we have to be aware that it is available and then not be afraid of it. Yeah. Not be afraid of what we don't know that drives many people to choose the devil they know over the possibilities of what they don't know. I mm -hmm. think it also has to do with worthiness, feeling worthy of something so unbelievably beautiful and not carrying ah. your shame around. And trauma. I think has a lot to do with that. Once we become 
familiar with our unknowing of our trauma, mm. in a sense? Trauma, trauma in and of itself is so... Is it, uh, this is, might sound strange, but it's a certain kind of a neutral thing. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that happens to your nervous system, but the shame that comes with it is what keeps us from feeling like we're worthy of participating. And helps keep the trauma in the dark where we can't work with it. Yeah, our problem that other people can be empathic about. (laughs) (laughs) In that condescending, empathic way. Mm -hmm. God, I'm really, I've got a cynical little part of me, don't I? Well, I think it's very hard not to be in this world. I have a tremendous amount of cynicism that comes out in whether, sometimes it seems like appropriate moments, but maybe not. (laughs) I, I don't seem terribly cynical. No. But you'd be surprised by some of the things that come out of my mouth. I'm not always talking to people like you. Sometimes I'm tearing things to shreds. Well, things do need to be torn to shreds. Yeah. Uh, we need to deconstruct a lot in order kind to... Kind of our civilization re- needs to re- die. <laughs> recreate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically, unfortunately... A lot that we know needs to, it's, it's scary. Yeah. Well, we do have teeth and fingernails, so I guess we were designed for... Tearing. And a sharp tongue sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so y- you were talking about magic? Would you like to... And shame. And shame, I, I, oh, yeah. I, that's just so important. It's, it is true that shame is the big blocker. I, this mm. is my experience in my own life and with students and with friends and I just for women especially oh me not too not only women me too I was deeply shamed at a very early age mm. by my grandmother who was a real embodiment of the rigidity of our culture uh. and it has had a profound effect on me uh. one that I still find myself up against that's wonderful <laughs> men aren't always willing to talk about their shame I was very fortunate. At a very young age, I stumbled upon a wonderful community where we shared everything together. And we explored everything. No holds barred. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I love what you guys are doing here. And that kind of community, that kind of support is possible. That community did dissolve. But it's always possible Mm. when people decide they want to come together and do that, serve in that way with each other. And I love that you guys are doing that here. Mm. You're doing that for students who are going to go out there. You're the teachers of teachers. I mean, you're the the guiders, the nurturers of our future world saviors, you could say, <laughs> perhaps. I mean, well, that, I just that's probably say putting they, them too much on the really pedestal. They really nurture us, too. They oh, nurture yeah. it's us definitely so much a more than they realize. They just... I definitely learn far more from other people, particularly young, inspired, open Mm. people than anything else, and certainly more than I have. (laughs) Yeah. So I I totally understand that. I feel like everything we'll say from now on is going to be anticlimactic. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm sure we could talk about multiple climaxes. (laughs) Because go ahead. I could, you know, I said anticlimactic, and look where she went with it. Well, it has, it has been pointed out that, you know, until we got this one student who did this work, that it's, we never talk about sex. The closest we come is by way of Audre Lorde. 
when we, you know, I did, as when I was in the BAMA program, we had a whole residency theme, the erotic. And Audre Lorde's The Power of the Erotic was the assigned text. And she, but she doesn't actually ever use the word sex. <laughs> she says the erotic. Um, but it, it's the wellspring for everything. So maybe we just don't have the language. Um, but whatever that thing is. Um, what language do you use, Sarah, for that? For sex? <laughs> you just say sex. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we can definitely talk about sex. Well, I mean, you mentioned Tantra. Um, I was raised in a Shaivite um, ashram. And Shaivism is the home base for Tantra back many, many, you know, thousands of years or whatever. Um, which really has nothing to do with sex, of course. It has to do with life energy and devotion, which, of course, has everything to do with sex. <laughs> and, you know, how you use or misuse... It's like the uh, order we, p we put things in. Uh, yeah. You know, I think about celibacy as a fantastic expression right now, personally, because I kind of need to rein it in <laughs> um, as a way as a way of being sexual in the world you know oh. because it's Say a way more about that um, <clears throat> it's a way of cultivating your sexual sexuality that is different from other ways of expressing and cultivating your sexuality Radi Very, maybe radiating it rather yeah, than a good word. than Enacting than just yeah, sort of, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm, I'm currently taking a, an herbal formula given to me by Larkin to help rectify my my being for from the mistakes that I've recently made. I Mist don't know if they were mistakes. They actually weren't not mistakes, but they had they were like shock waves of. Um, what they brought up in me and so yeah I would I would love I think we should repeat a residency with the theme with Audre Lorde's theme and see I think that's a great idea we can have Francis do he has a workshop on celibacy that he's already given no kidding yeah he gave it simultaneously in the undergraduate program to, I think it was Harukati and Muriel did a workshop on polyamory like in one building and no kidding Fran yeah Francis did no kidding god yeah. cool stuff is happening but why not why not bring them together see I polyamory and celibacy in the same conversation <laughs> bring it to, see I we, lived in California for many years and people were doing men's groups and women were doing women's groups and I'm like I'm sick of listening to the same old male crap I let's come together Huh. Let's let's bring it together. You know, we've been doing this, but if we keep it half real, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, That's we need to. We need to. I think we. Well, I don't know if our faculty would go for this, but I think it would be great. Maybe we'll start with a radio show exclusively dedicated. Well, what do you mean? Maybe you don't. You don't know if the faculty <laughs> will go for it. You are the faculty. We are two of the faculty. Exactly. Don't look at me. I have no authority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I say, do it. Go for it. Mm. And if you want to do more on the radio, I'm all into it. 
you need to get together your posse of people that my posse yeah group of people to talk about this okay well let's collaborate together on it okay we'll create a posse i think pleasure i think pleasure is the word that's underrated i think you're right i think you're right this thing like i've finally like gotten up the nerve to decide that i'm actually going to write a book and it's when i realized that i could do it from and with and in pleasure and as a relational act that's excellent that that it finally became something worth doing like what what would we and then that's goddard too it's like what gives you pleasure there's such a you know if it doesn't give you pleasure why yeah i think that's a little less also yeah less because i was thinking that there are people who um are very shut down around sex for very good reasons so um so having things centered around that might not be the best idea. And pleasure has a whole range yeah, of things. Like pleasure yeah, feels yeah. all kinds of ways, right? It feels yeah. easy. It feels hard. It feels, you know. It's also synonymous with joy. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just so happens one of the foundational texts for embodiment studies is Carol Gilligan's book, The Birth of Pleasure, which mm. is all about disconnection and how to connect with ourselves our bodies and what we know and feel and it's about reclaiming this myth of cupid and psyche which she says is all about pleasure Mm. so that could be that would be a workaround then exactly okay and it doesn't necessarily have to be a dionysian bacchanal it could but it (laughs) it doesn't have to be right i mean a lot of people are terrified (laughs) of of such things and others are are just craving that yeah so that's like part of our schizophrenic society. Yeah, exactly. And you're working on a memoir entitled... It's actually completed. I'm looking for a publisher. And the title of it? Is In Search of Pure Lust. I love that title. Everyone says they love it, but then someone told me that's not marketable because that's all anyone thinks about in the publishing world anymore, (laughs) right? But I mean, yeah, I'm very attached to that title because it's true. It's what it's Talk about that title. You want me to... What that means. Uh, well, it's like it's kind of means that I thought that for me when I came out, I, I it was just like the most incredible whole body soul thing, and I thought that every time I ever fell in love, it was the whole world, the whole universe was in it. It was I can't even begin to explain. That's what I thought pure lust meant. And then meanwhile, Mary Daly had written a book called Pure Lust. So I thought that's what the book was about. When I read it, I realized it wasn't at all. But um, part of the book takes place when I'm living in Mary Daly's house, and she's kind of part of it. So it has a number of levels of meaning to it. But it's all about how I came to find out in my life that love isn't always like falling in love isn't always that. And desire itself isn't always this... I, I I just had all these things piled onto it. Sometimes it's just impure lust, and you have to just accept that. <laughs> lust is not always pure. I mean, I come and I, what I, is I kind of coming lust? down for a crash landing oh. in my search for pure lust. But I come around to seeing something that knowing something I hadn't known before. Oh, so the pure lust was was the experience of when you fell in love, yeah. of your heart being expanded so Every, much that it included uh, the entire world. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I've had, the, I like, had that experience and, and myself. And not just yeah. my heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my, right, exactly. Everything. My everything. And that is that is an amazing experience. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, 
And so that even to talk about sex just felt like, no, it's just, that's so, you have no idea. That's not, it's it's just. Right, yeah. uh, A little sliver. A very little sliver, yeah. Yeah. A very one-dimensional sliver, yeah. 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 Which is why the word, the uh, erotic. Yeah, that feels a whole lot bigger. There can be a lot of sex that isn't remotely erotic. and Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It has to do with that ever-blossoming young. And I remember when we did have that residency about the erotic, very few people actually talked about sex, which in a way was wonderful. I remember people talked about showering and dancing and yeah, writing. Yeah. <laughs> right. We can include everything into the mix. Yeah. The more the merrier <laughs> of the elements of the experience. Yeah. Of the universe around us mm-hmm. and within us. Yes, yes. Yeah, all experienced in the same instant. Yeah, and now for me, it's like I don't expect that. It's a touchstone. Right. I, you know what I mean? As you get older, you don't right. necessarily right. I, I, I was just reflecting because I, I have an interview with, with somebody about death, and I've been thinking about things like that. I'm thinking, well, you know, I've gotten to experience all these things in my life. I'm ready to go anytime. Really? Kind of, wow. yeah. I mean, it'd be wonderful to experience them some more, but who knows? That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know that I'm ready to say that. That's beautiful, though. God, we've gone everywhere in this conversation, from sex to death. Can we do it again? (laughs) (laughs) Again, again. (laughs) That's your problem. (laughs) Well, you you talked about multiple orgasms. Exactly. That's where this is going. Life is a, I think we an need orgasmic to expand, experience. Yes, expand yes. the definition of orgasm yeah. beyond climax. Right. Or vice versa. Beyond a physical. No, climax. physical. Let's, if we're, hit, we're sticking with embodiment, we'll keep it physical. Keep oh, it yeah. physical. But wait a minute. Embodiment is mu- much more than just the physical because yes. Gur- Gurdjieff talked about human beings as the three brained beings to muddy up metaphors and that it's only when we're integrating all three together that then the spiritual realm opens up there's okay so, so in, in, in Ellie's workshops I mean you see this over and over spirit as matter the body does everything you know the well body the body's the soul, vehicle it is the vehicle it's the vehicle yeah. we can't do it, anything without it the body understood as also the cosmos you know mm-hmm. electromagnetic fields are physical mm-hmm. and yeah. um, the earth of course yeah. yeah but they're different levels of it subtler I think what, what, what of Ellie it. did was she really said if you just let go of the opportunity the option to posit spirituality what would it be like if you could just hover there just mm. bracket spirituality mm. yeah and dwell without it <laughs> and experience the freedom yeah. of dwelling without it and find what language. would that be like? And find and other find, language for it. And find the language, right? Because what happens? Well, first of all, you know, words become kind of yeah, yeah, clunky and mm-hmm. stuck. But um, we have this feeling like when we take away spirituality as a word, that something's being taken from us. You know, that we really is really true. But let it be taken. Let it go for a while. See what is available if you can just shelve it mm-hmm. for twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. And see if it really went anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot. Or if of you lost anything, or what you gained, really. I mean, right. In many ways, you have to let go of something in order to really 
allow it in. Yeah, yeah. And know what it is. I think spirituality is one of those things that is so misunderstood, yeah. miscontextualized, yeah. mistalked about, much like the term God or the term love. Yeah. Or what did Nietzsche say? People use the term God to put an end to the questions. Hmm. Hmm. Well, same with spirit. I mean, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. It's the words that you use to put an end to the question because you think you know what it means. Yeah. Or you think you know that it's misunderstood. Let's just get rid of it for a while. Yeah. You can always get it back. Well, we're just about there. Any final words? No. <laughs> I think we covered it all. Body, sex, death, magic, dark matter. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. It was wonderful. Thank you, Tonio. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tonio. This was... <laughs> Lisa Wilde, thank you. Sarah Van Hoy, thank you. And everyone out there, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.